Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You have a, a financial crisis, you know, then combined with austerity that hits the poorest hardest, combined with a quantitative easing response that puts wealth in the richest, then you move into a COVID cycle, the disease itself hits the poorest hardest, the austerity response hits women in the poorest hardest, and again, you're starting to see quantitative easing as the answer to keep that wealth in the private hands. So we're locked in this cycle. We have to understand that the rich people just get richer and they have more money. But most regular people who work for a living spend their money when they have more money. And those are the people who need to give more money to, to have in their pockets to spend in order to make the economy grow. You fundamentally have people deciding and making decisions on things that have no experience or understanding or knowledge of what the implications or the impact that has on the individual. So, for example, when you decide to cut cuts of disability allowance or childcare allowance or any of those things, that doesn't affect these people who make that decision. What's a shame is that we seem to have lost this connection with the rest of the world. We seem to be sort of battling on our own front, but forgotten that the rest of the world impacts us as well. So I do, I do, I feel a bit frustrated that sort of we've gone into what I would call sort of batten down the hatches mode. And actually, if we want to run this country properly, we can't batten down the hatches. We need to keep our eyes open. I've been wanting to do one of these for a while now, and I couldn't think of a better topic to do it on in respect to the cost of living crisis and austerity. Bearing in mind some of the challenges that we face here in the UK, similar challenges that are being felt around the world. So I wanted to bring together some of our past friends from the podcast and also Katie as well from Oxfam and just gauge a little bit more through a conversation what people's thoughts are of the challenges that lie ahead and also critique on the recent autumn budget that we've just had. And then kind of as we kind of progress the conversation, I like to kind of drive things towards solutions and possibilities for change. So what other possibilities may there be that we could be doing as a as a society at this point in time to address the challenges that we face? But before we dive into the conversation, I think just to help our listeners understand who each person is, I'll just quickly go around and ask you all to introduce yourself and who you represent. I'm Craig. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Gratitude. What we do is we give donations from in-game purchases and subscription models to um, environmental conservation and social NGOs around the globe. We're trying to help offset the carbon footprint that gaming produces, which is absolutely astronomical. The average gamer uses 1,400 kilowatt hours of energy per year. There's 3.24 billion gamers 
and that's the equivalent of the whole energy usage of the United States annually. So we're giving uh, an option for gamers and gaming companies to help offset those um, carbon emissions. Uh, my name is Morris Pearl. I am um, the chairman of organization um, both here in the United States where I am and in the United Kingdom called Patriotic Millionaires. We are organizing wealthy people to speak out about how growing inequality is making our nation less stable. And we are concerned that we're sort of on the precipice of, sort of losing civil society. We have uh, several hundred members here in the United States and um, some dozens of people like Gary Stevenson and Ian Gregg in the United Kingdom. And we're helping them speak out about uh, inequality and the danger thereof. Hi, I'm Juliet Davenport. I was the founder of a company, one of the first 100% renewable energy companies in the UK, nearly over probably 25 years ago now. I've just written a book called The Green Startup, which is how to green your business, essentially. But also I sit on the board of various different organisations related to the energy transition. So my ambition is to kind of support in as many ways as I can a quicker transition to zero carbon. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Katie Chakraborty. I'm the head of policy and advocacy at Oxfam GB. Oxfam GB is the, the, the first uh, Oxfam, founded 80 years ago this year um, to combat famine in Europe, actually. But now we're part of 21 organizations, um, Oxfam's around the world, uh, combating poverty and also increasingly uh, speaking out on inequality. And then therefore I have to send our, our, our love to the patriotic millionaires that we're big fans of in that space. One of the things that I wanted to kind of drive this conversation from is is a point of understanding the challenges that we that we face currently and also that lie ahead. Recently, I was reading that Oxfam brought out a, a report yesterday on some of the challenges of, of austerity. So maybe, Katie, if you can kind of kick us off, looking at the challenges that we face as one of the richest nations in the world and a government that have spent billions, how are we in this position whereby so many people are choosing between heating and eating? Uh, well, I mean, the short answer is we are in that position because of a, a, a global cost of living crisis. So we're in that position now because of energy prices, because of, of food prices. And I think the important thing to recognise in that space, going back to the inequality point, is that um, not everybody is is losers in that uh, you know in that dynamic. We brought out a report sort of earlier on um, in the year that billionaires in the food and energy sectors have seen their fortunes increase by a billion dollars every two days during the pandemic period. There are 62 new billionaires in the food and, and and energy sectors. So we're in that place because of a global cost of living crisis. We're also in that place because. You know, this this term austerity, we've been talking about it for well over a decade in the UK. I know we'll get on to talking about the, the autumn statement later. But the reason that that's not squarely seen as an austerity budget is that there wasn't an awful lot left to cut. So instead, it was sort of delayed and pushed back towards the general election uh, but, but, uh, until after the next election. And the other thing I'd just like to pick up on, if I, if I can... Peter, I don't want to use too much of an opening statement, but just to 
place that in that in that global context i mean it, it's it's far from just the uk facing austerity there's an estimate that about by 2023 85% of the world's population will be living under some kind of austerity measures so that's contraction of spending caps on wages uh, and usually relatively regressive um tax rises some of that by governments who are free to choose that that is how they want to run their economies and we can question that but some of it actually uh, imposed by bodies like the IMF about 85% of the loans that the IMF uh, issued during the covid period to countries that were struggling had clauses in them that required fiscal consolidation as part of that uh, recovery period so uh, we're also locking in developing countries into that illogic of austerity as well Morris, like bearing in mind your background at BlackRock and also the work that you do today in respect to the Patriot of the Millionaires, what would your critique of the current situation be? Well, austerity is just the wrong answer because taking money away from people at the lower end of the economic spectrum means they won't be able to spend money. They won't be able to pay their bills every month. They won't be able to pay their rent. And... That's how people like me make money, is from millions and millions of people all over the country paying their iPhone bills and their rent bills and their mortgages every single month. And so that is the wrong answer because it hurts everybody when you impose austerity on the less wealthy people. And I've worked in Greece, you know, and I, you know, Varoufakis was the one who had the right answer because... He knew that taking money out of the economy was not going to really help the government or anyone else for that matter. We have to understand that the rich people just get richer when they have more money, but most regular people who work for a living spend their money when they have more money, and those are the people who we need to put, who need to give more money to, to have in their pockets to spend in order to make the economy grow. So that's my thought. And Juliet, bearing in mind your expertise, uh, initially good energy to also the work that you do today, kind of what would your critique be on the current situation? So I think I think one thing I would add to, to Katie's kind of uh, view of why are we in this situation? I mean, the UK particularly has some of the worst housing stock in Europe. So we have appalling housing that essentially leaks energy. So every time you put a heater on or a, a, a you turn any form of heating on in one of our in a home, it just goes out the windows. It goes out the windows. It goes out the doors. It goes out the roof. So. Uh, essentially, we're just wasting energy. And that is just a crime from two point of views. One of the one point of view is the fact that the people who have to live in those homes, one, have to spend more to keep them warm. Or if they decide not to keep them warm, then they're actually potentially going to be subject to ill health, whether it's through mould or whether there's, there's, I think there's a recent case where a child has died of mould infection as a result of a breathing complication from mould. Yeah, yeah. And so, so there's some really serious implications by the fact that we have such poor housing stock. And I think this is this is something that we as a nation are behind the rest of Europe. Um, we do need to address at speed. I think Belgium's the only other country 
that as bad as the UK. And that that would help everybody. One, it would reduce our total impact on the energy usage. And if you drop energy usage, as we saw through COVID, energy prices drop. So the less we use of it, the less expensive it becomes. So that, that would be a round all benefit. And secondly, it would also help improve health and affordability for people those who can least afford it. Yeah, I guess it's it's interesting because when we do look at like health and healthcare and public services are often the first areas to be cut. And kind of the the thing that struck me when I was kind of looking into the data was like the the diminishing levels of mortality within the UK um in respect to like people are living shorter than they ever used to and and the the impacts of that is is quite stark and you know you're seeing the, the volume of food banks as well in this country is just it, it's insane and it, it's quite heartbreaking kind of craig look at looking from your expertise what would your views be on the current circumstance we face in respect to austerity and the cost of living crisis well it's funny you should just mention about food banks because yesterday we were on facebook and there was two pages um created yesterday where people are just going in their cupboards and then offering the food for free just come and collect this food so it's going beyond like food banks. Um, I mean, just going back to what we were saying about housing as well, Bank of England base rate went up 75 basis points, which was a 33% increase on what was before at 2.25%. That's absolutely huge. That means, like, personally to me, that means that when my mortgage comes to an end, my fixed offer comes to an end in April, my mortgage will go up £700 a month. Now, on top of like energy, your fuel prices going up. You know, how are people actually going to be able to afford another, say, £1,000, £1,200 a month on what they're already doing? There's going to be house, houses repossessed, exactly what Juliet was saying about, you know, the housing crisis that we've already got. It's just going to add to this. And I think it's a it's huge problem that, and I completely agree with what Morris said as well, it's not, austerity isn't the answer. But exactly, so many people are, are facing difficulty there's that there's that saying that goes around at the moment about um, people choosing between between heating and eating but but that's the thing like people are making these stark choices at this point in time so nobody's as geeky as as, as me when it comes to looking at OBR statistics and and looking in the details but it's it's the real term effect so kind of from your expertise katie like what have been some of the the real term effects on people in respect to this time of crisis <clears throat> Well, we've used the term people so far, but I mean, the point of a sort of inequality lens is that, it, you know, it, it's some people a lot more than others. And in particular, in uh, austerity situations, you know, the world over, you do have to look to the impacts on women and girls in particular. And, and in countries like ours, um, black and people of colour in particular, as feeling the effects of this. And it's it's a pattern that's sort of complicated in, in every stage of the process. So, you know, women are worst hit when you have cuts to public sector pay overrepresented in place. You know, we're talking about nurses' pay in this country. We're talking about the inability to pay properly in the social care sector. They're looking at how to, you know, uh, cut back on, on in child and social care. These are highly feminised sectors of, of, of the economy. Then you get 
cuts to public services. Public services, are, 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 they're important for everybody, but they're massively important for women they're as users. But also, because when you cut public services, those needs are still there. Those care needs are still there. The, the cycles of austerity that we've been through in the last you know, couple of decades, you have a, a financial crisis, you know, then combined with austerity that hits the poorest hardest, combined with a quantitative easing response that puts wealth in the richest, then you move into a COVID cycle, the disease itself hits the poorest hardest, the austerity response hits women in the poorest hardest, and again, you're starting to see quantitative easing as the answer to keep that wealth in the private hands. So we're locked in this cycle where both the disease and the cure combining increased inequality uh, and particularly for women and girls. Yeah, you know, I think it's worthwhile delving into a little bit of a critique on the cycles of austerity that we've seen because the rationale, I've never, for me personally, I've never really understood the rationale behind um, the need for austerity, I do believe, and we'll get to the solutions at a later date at the end of this podcast as to what other opportunities are available to people. But the cycles of austerity... Morris, if you'd like to kind of walk us through a little bit of as the, the the initial push, what led to the first wave of austerity that we saw under the Cameron Osborne years in the UK um, following the financial crash, and equally the implications of, of those measures that are being um, discussed and put into place today. Well, looking at what's happening today, we're seeing interest rates going up. Here in the United States, where I live, most people with mortgages are fixed rate mortgages, as opposed to the United Kingdom, where people's mortgages vary as interest rates change. But the central bank, either the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve here in the United States, which is similar, raise interest rates. It doesn't affect everybody equally. It doesn't affect me directly at all. I don't pay interest to anybody, but it does affect people who are trying to buy cars, people who are trying to buy houses, and people who are trying to build houses and build cars. They're concerned that wages are going up too much. First of all, I would say wages going up is a good thing, not a bad thing. But even putting that aside, their mechanism for dealing with inflation is to cause more unemployment in just those specific sectors, housing and automobiles. And they think that having more people losing their jobs will result in less people buying stuff and therefore tend to reduce prices. And I mean, they're technically right. If they cause a lot of unemployment, that will tend to decrease prices and things. People will be less able to pay rent Landlords have to lower their rents, things like that. But I don't think that's a good thing. I don't want to live in a country with lots of unemployed people in order to keep prices down that I have to pay. I'd rather live in a country with lots of people who have jobs and can afford to buy stuff and get rich that way, not by low wages and low prices. You know, I'd rather live in a place with high wages and high prices. And that's why you see... Here in the United States, America, we have different policies a little bit in different states. People are building businesses, hiring people, moving to places with higher taxes, not places with lower taxes. Places like New York and California are growing in population, and places with lower taxes in the middle of the country are losing population 
for exactly those reasons, that people want to live in places where their communities have enough money to pay for stuff, whether it's schools, housing, healthcare, all the things that we do collectively as a community that we can't do individually, each person doing for themselves. So that's why, you know, we think that the current measures, rising interest rates, are are not going to solve problems or, or step in the wrong direction. Julia, there's that saying that um, there's no future in the past. Why do you think we persist with an economic model that is benefiting so few and is detrimental to so many? I think there's a fear factor in there, Peter. I think I think part of it is fear of the unknown of turning it running a different model. I mean, that's that's what I've generally seen in terms of, okay, I mean, I've focused most of my career in the energy sector and, and so much of that is around fear of change, fear of, of shifting. We've, we've known, for example, that we've under-supported whole swathes of our population in the UK, whether it's from an energy point of view, whether it's from an infrastructure point of view. But the the idea of somebody making the decision to lease a contract to do that and make a positive step, you can't be fired for not losing, letting a contract, but you can be fired for making the wrong contractual change. And I think that is a fundamental issue in the UK, is that we get stuck in this kind of stasis and do not understand how to make steps to go forward. One of the biggest challenges we've got is that actually renewable energy is one of the cheapest forms of energy today in the world. And we have a huge amount of it in the UK. So we have 40% of the Europe's wind resource here in the UK. But we're going to be slow at developing it because we can't, we haven't made the infrastructure investment over the last 10 years that should have been made. And quite often those are the, the, the lack of that foresight has been made for, for reasons of, of short-term cost, but actually really not being able to think about long-term decision-making. And I think that's, for me, that's where we've got so stuck is this long-term decision-making where you need governments to take longer-term views. Yeah, I did see that stat um, not too long ago about renewables being nine times cheaper than yeah. fossil. And yeah. looking at that, it, it just it just makes total sense. We're, ju- we're also just recently joined by Ryan. Ryan is representing the Valuable 500. Ryan, bearing in mind the work that you guys do, looking at the challenges that we're facing by the cost of living crisis and austerity, what in, in your view has been like the direct implications of, of the people that you represent? Well, I think when it comes to the disability community, quite really, when you look at everything that's kind of been going on, the disability community on a regular basis is always considered as an afterthought. So I think when we look at all of these different variables that are discussed, I don't think disability is ever at the forefront. It's always a conversation that happens, or we forgot, or it wasn't considered, or it's the sympathy side that is, oh, poor them. And I think what really what the disability community is really after is to be heard, to be listened, to be thought about from the start, from the offset. And I think that all then comes back down to the fact of, which I think some of those points that you were saying just a moment ago there, uh, Juliet, is the sentence that, you know, they're not involved in any of the conversations. There's no representation for them. So people making these decisions make these decisions. And these people are not around the table when these decisions are being made. 
And I think that's really important when we're looking at things. If we want to be inclusive and diverse, we need to make sure that those that are making those decisions are really being able to come from a purpose of either lived experience or experience of some shape or form to then help drive and navigate the various obstacles that are presented to us with the things that are happening at the moment. And Katie, bearing in mind, we, we mentioned earlier on the, the IMF. So it'd be good to kind of frame the impact the IMF has in, respe- in respect to austerity and in respect to the um, various different like loans that they're providing and their, their overarching role in this process, because I think that that's a story that's worthwhile to be told. It's part of a wider story, and it goes to your question about why austerity, because we have decided that we know what a sort of grown-up, fiscally responsible economic model looks like, you know, largely in the global north, despite the fact that it keeps crashing and leaves a lot of people living in poverty uh, and creates vast inequalities. That is one that, that, that we have found many ways to impose on developing countries, I mean, pretty explicitly during the years of the Cold War, but you don't have to go back that far, through many soft cultural and educational routes of imposing a sense of, of, of how to manage your, your economy. And the IMF have played a huge part in that, structural adjustment through the 80s and, and, and uh, many examples going on through then, and now, you know, still um, continued in the way that they deal with emerging markets and developing countries. And as I was saying, um, you know, COVID loans still coming with these requirements for um, fiscal c- contraction and, and austerity measures. But it's not just that, is it? Because one of the decisions taken um, in our country in the last week or so was basically to confirm that that, um, that short-lived period where we met our aid commitment to the developing um, to developing countries of paying 0.7% of gross national income in aid is basically gone for the foreseeable future. They're paying about 0.5%. A lot of that is going on hosting refugees within this country. And we're counting things like donating our excess COVID vaccines that we can't use anyway, but let's count that as aid, cutting into that budget. Um, So it's a whole package of of still um, looking to impose and extract wealth from developing countries and to then impose austerity measures and aid is essentially an austerity measure because you're reducing finance that goes into essential services and and, um, and areas like green transition, et cetera, in, in the developing world as well. I think I think the role of the IMF is, is but one in a wider picture. Looking back at what Juliet said about long-term versus short-term thinking, the ability to just say, oh, well, we're not going to do the 0.5% anymore. We're going to drop it to, it went to 0.55, now down to 0.5. That's, what's that, about like five, six billion plus in um, in, in mm-hmm. lost aid that's been provided elsewhere. And if you look at the wider implications of that, it's it's actually the, you know, rising levels of inequality, rising levels of poverty. And it's just, it's all short-termist again. So, I guess, Juliet, because you you flagged the point about long-term versus short-term, what can businesses and what can governments do, bearing in mind the cycles that both go through? So if you look at a government that's a four-year cycle, if you look at um, business, and we we all do quarterly reporting, what can we do to shift the gauge beyond short-termism to more long-term focus? 
So I think one of the things you, you can do, and I'm beginning to see it in some of the conversations I've seen in uh, less from the aid point of view, Katie, more in the supporting uh, transition part. So I've seen some work being done by the British government in Asia and South Africa, where actually what we're supporting is long-term thinking. Um, and bizarrely, we are actually supporting long-term thinking in those cases, particularly for infrastructure thinking and access to renewables. Because again, what's interesting is the World Bank has come in and incentivized continual investment in coal, which then leaves those countries hooked on a, on a, a fuel that they have to not only import, but also is expensive, rather than being able to switch to their own natural resources and renewables. So there's there's some kind of infrastructure pieces. And I think from, from a government point of view, I think there is definite work where we can take what we got wrong and support countries in a sort of future way. And, and I've seen some good work in that, particularly in power infrastructure. In From a business point of view, I'm seeing businesses take steps forward here because part of it is that they see a future where they're not going to be able to operate. Similar to the points that Morris was making, is that a, a world where you've got um, chaotic systems and you've got uh, great um, diversity in terms of wealth, then it's not a great place for businesses to operate. And so they want to see stability. They want to see long-term supply chains supported and, and thought about. And they need to have a workforce that's fit for the future. So they've got a diverse workforce as well. And uh, I'm seeing a lot more interesting thinking coming from business. What they're, in a sense, what we're all waiting for is government to kind of keep up. That's the challenge for me. And bear in mind this, the speed of change in, the, in respect to it's being led by business rather than government. Looking at the government that we have at the moment, what would be people's honest assessment as to their, if you were doing a, let's, let's not say an annual review, let's say a 10-year review, what have they done well and what could they have done better? Ryan? You know, where credit where credit is due, I think during the pandemic, we have to look at the fact that that was no easy job for anyone. Anyone who was going to do it was going to be scrutinised for what they did. And, you know, we have to pay where we, we got through it and we've done it. Have we got it through it the right way? No. Is there always going to be things that we can pick and people could do better? Yes. I think the fundamental part that has always been for the last sort of, if there was an annual re review that I would give, and it goes back to that fact of lived experience, you fundamentally have people deciding and making decisions on things that have no experience or understanding or knowledge of what the implications or the impact that has on the individual. So, for example, when you decide to cut cuts of disability allowance or childcare allowance or any of those things, that doesn't affect these people who make that decision. That really doesn't. Or when you get people that are deciding on the health, what's happening with the health, with the NHS and everything like that, who have no experience. They're, they're not doctors. They have no understanding of how it works. And I think that, to me, if there was an annual review, I would say, is get the people that know the stuff about the various parts of the mechanisms that run the, the, the UK and have them as the lead. You can still have a front person who's the politician, the spokesperson or what it is, but it's actually being made by the people that actually fully understand it and get it and actually have those conversations with the people that it actually affects. And I think that's really important. And I think if there's anything that, that they could learn from that is the fact that they would probably get it right a little bit better rather than 
sort of finger in the air and go, well, we'll give that a go. You know, it, it creates this amount of money or we don't really need that. Then the, the emotional, the empathetic side is completely switched off. And I get it. Business is like that sometimes. But there is a factor that we find with businesses as well is that when it comes to just disability as a whole, they're scared to talk about it. They're scared of getting it wrong. They're scared of saying the wrong thing or not saying it right. And, you know, we believe that they're all on different journeys and they're learning as they go through that. But I just don't think the government, whatever you know, party is in, ever learn that. They just seem to think, well, we'll use the buzzword of whatever that might be, of what we know is going to get the votes, and we'll get that to drive us through. And, and unfortunately, people are a little bit more intelligent now than they ever were before because they're doing their research, they're understanding it, they're looking at things, and you're going to get caught out. And I think that's what makes it even more difficult. People won't stand for it anymore. And that's the thing. People are kind of seeing the inequalities. They're seeing it in their, in their lives. Like recently, you know, we've we've just had children. We've got a toddler. We've got just had twins. And recently, there was a march of the mummies. I, I can't remember the statistic, but I think um, a number of years ago, there was like ninety percent of people that like took maternity leave went back into work, and then now it's like dramatically dropped. It's like in and around the twenty percent of people actually go back into work. And and that's because they look at things like the rising levels of childcare and and the costs that they face that it's it's becoming extremely challenging. So bearing in mind that some of the challenges that we that we do face it, I think this is probably a good time to kind of go into thoughts on November 17th autumn budget because there's a lot of points and factors that led us to this point in respect to why we've had a budget that is now almost like the polar opposite to what Liz Truss was uh, was proposing in her view of economics. But the, the challenge that we face is, is the cost. So Liz Truss, when she was in office, that it's proposed that, she, that her decisions cost us $30 billion. Now, they talk about the um, economic black hole of um, being $50 billion, and that's why we've got to see austerity measures. But the reality is there's there's another way and i think before we get to the other way let's kind of walk, go around the table and and ask people's thoughts on what they felt were the key takeaways from the autumn budget what they felt that the government were doing well and also equally what they should be looking to improve upon so morris let's maybe start with you well i, mean, I don't know a lot about the autumn budget um in the uk but i just like to look at things a slightly different way than what ryan was saying I don't think that these people are stupid. It's not that they don't understand what's going on. It's they have a completely different objective. So when you're making a decision on how to get and where to go, on, on how to get someplace, you first have to decide where you want to go. And then you decide how you're going to get there. It's like if we're arguing about whether we should you know, take a car or take the tube, first we should decide where it is we're trying to get. And then we should decide how to get there. And a lot of these people who make these decisions, whether it's the IMF headquarters in Washington or in the city of London or in Westminster, they have a different idea than we do about what the goal is. A lot of them want to protect the wealth of their investors and people who are investing. And it's not that they don't care. It's that that's their objective. And other things have to are not their objective, not their goals. And so they're making decisions to meet the goals that they have. And those goals are essentially to support those people who are already rich. 
And yeah, if that's what you want to do in the short term, austerity and not providing services to other people who need them could be a good idea. And, you know, I support the idea that in the long term, they're actually just factually wrong, that in the long term, we do want a more inclusive society because that's going to be good for the rich people and everyone else, too. Um, so I think we have to not say, oh, these people don't understand what's going on. I think they understand what's going on perfectly well. It's just they happen to want, have a different desire of what they want than some of us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like what Ryan said in respect to the the impact they don't in some of the policies and some of the decisions that they make, they don't see the direct impact of it on their family, on their, in their livelihoods in their, in and around their friendship groups, etc. cetera. Um, Katie, bearing in mind the, the autumn statement, what would your critique be of, um, yeah, initial thoughts? I mean, it was, it was funny listening to Morris because I mean, essentially what, what, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did is is they did exactly that, but they forgot to mask it. You know, they forgot to to be clever about it, and they went just straight for that um, that agenda. And you know, lo and behold, it's not as po- popular as they thought it was. And and the reason it's worth going back there is, you know, let's we all learnt this phrase, didn't we, during the Truss Kwarteng um, budget? We all learnt this this political phrase of pitch rolling. Oh, they didn't prepare us enough. We, they didn't roll the pitch. Well, they rolled the pitch really well for Hunt and for Sunak because mm. you know it couldn't get a lot worse um, than that now. Uh, and 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 they were able to present, uh, as I said, a kind of grown up, compassionate 
response to uh, a dire fiscal situation, which is what they did. So in some ways, the headlines were that there were very few headlines to take away. And they'd obviously really carefully crafted that so that there wasn't the 45p smoking gun or the, uh, you know, mind you, they're still backing, they're still dropping the bankers bonuses, etc, etc. So, you know, definitely some good things in there. Uprating benefits in line with inflation, much needed, won't come in till April. And let's forget that just keeping up in, in line with inflation does not suddenly turn this into an adequate social safety net. People, particularly those with caring responsibilities, will still be in poverty. And yes, some action taken to increase windfall taxes, nowhere near enough on fossil fuels. And still, um, Juliet will understand this better than myself, but it, it still feels that you're able to get around that through continued investment in, in fossil fuel expansion to a, to a greater extent. Um, some stuff done yes. on capital. Yeah, yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, some stuff done on 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 capital gains, but their trial that they were going to be a lot braver on that, actually moving towards equalising um, wealth earned through capital than wealth earned through work. And of course, the big thing which I referred to earlier is that they have kicked back. The, the 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 spending cuts, which are a necessary part of their package, into where they calculate will be, um, you know, post the next um, election. So we're locked into an austerity framework, but one that they they hoped to get away with not being responsible for. Yeah, and when I looked at it, one of the things that took my eye immediately was the the idea of a, a lost decade, because when we look at like rising prices will erode ultimately real wages and reduce our living standards. I think it was by about 7%. That took us back to 2013 levels. So I'm all for diversity of thought. I think that it, the more people from different backgrounds and different experiences that we can get around the table to discuss solutions, the better. But I do find it quite troubling to have any form of valid critique to, to say that they are now the party of fiscal responsibility when, you know, that we have seen a lost, we've seen a lost decade and people are going to feel it in their pockets and in their livelihoods for a long period of time. That was kind of the the, the highlight for me when I did look at the, the stats. I was, I was appalled by the fact that we've just gone back and, and lost essentially a decade's worth of, of, of growth. And I know growth isn't always the, the right term, but, um, yeah, like that was shocking for me. But Juliet, what was your thoughts when you kind of looked at the autumn statement? Well, I mean, not dissimilar to some of the other speakers, they, they, their job was made very easy by how appalling the job previously was. So it, it, in some ways, what's interesting is that although there's some sort of the pieces around what happened during COVID and that we did a, a good job of a sort of bad situation, what we didn't do is really think about coming out of the COVID situation well enough. And I mean, what this is again, which is slight from an energy point of view, if you go back to the 2007, 2008 crisis, banking crisis, where we went into recession and came out, what happened at the end of that is actually because everybody threw everything at the economy to try and make it grow, you actually increased fossil emissions during that period quite significantly, and you increased energy usage. So you built in a long-term sort of structural issue there. Now, if we'd, we had time and we, we didn't, we weren't coming out of COVID, we didn't come out of COVID that fast and it was relatively controlled. 
we probably could have foreseen what might happen in terms of energy prices. And also, I absolutely know that Russia would have been modelling this and taking their opportunity when they did. They've always manipulated energy prices in Europe. They've always looked at seeing when they can use it to their geopolitical advantage. And and I think, for me, what's, what's a shame is that we seem to have lost this connection with the rest of the world. We seem to be sort of battling on our own front, but forgotten that the rest of the world impacts us. Us as well. So I do, I do, I feel a bit frustrated that sort of we've gone into what I would call sort of batten down the hatches mode. And actually, if we want to run this country properly, we can't batten down the hatches. We need to keep our eyes open. If we if we go into an austerity measure now, what's that going to put us back in terms of investment in the UK and making sure that one, we we look after the sort of wider set of people. And and for me, I mean, my personal view is that we should have the army out there now installing energy efficiency. We should be training as many people as possible to improve housing stock. And we should have done that this summer because we knew this winter was going to be crunch time in terms of energy prices. And although we're giving every householder some money, that's fine and that's great. And that's, that's a great sticking plaster. What really upsets me is that we're having to give them money in the first place because they've got such appalling housing. The dog agrees. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, it's a school run time. Sorry, <laughs> uh, Craig. Craig, can I get Peter? Can I ask Craig a question? Because I think I think Craig's area is really yeah, yeah. interesting. I, I'm actually I want to. I'm really bad. I play on my phone games sometimes because I get I get that dewind my head. And what what I find interesting about games is it's not just the impact, obviously, of the energy usage itself, but also the games themselves are quite interesting. There's there's quite a lot of growth games at the moment. So if you play, you can play economies, or you can play farming, or you can play. They're all about growth, and they're all about producing more. They're all about building more houses. It's fascinating. There's nothing about preservation of natural environment. There's nothing about diversity. There's nothing about looking after your community. There's some community stuff, but there's nothing. It's normally about putting a fountain up, nothing more. So I, I just wonder whether actually games could do so much more in terms of not only on the on the actual impact themselves in terms of how much energy they use, but the impact on an educational basis. In actual fact, that's um, quite bizarre because there are uh, gaming is one of the industries that are really trying to be more sustainable. They're really making a huge effort, you know, with their green nudges towards planting trees, etc. There are several games out there as well. Albal being one of the most used games out there, which is about preserving your your world, etc. And um, there's the new Avatar game coming out next year, um, which is all about preservation. There is a big movement towards environmental and sustainability within games, but I think it is a genre of, you know, shoot 'em up games and things like that, predominantly. But there is a, there are a lot of games like The Sims World as well, where it's growth and Sims have actually introduced an environmental elements to their games. So I, they are moving in the right direction, but we want to help them move a lot further and a lot faster. So they are they are progressive in their sustainability and the environment. There's a lot of, they've got the green game jams now, which are all about coming together and coming up with ideas about how gaming can be more beneficial to the environment and to social as well. So there is a movement towards it, but I know exactly what you mean. It does seem like it is a, you know, growth games and shoot 'em ups are the, the main genre of games. I think the cool thing about games is you, you look at from an industry, industry perspective, it's not really that 
old of an industry. It's been around like, you know, 70s, 80s and, you know, up until year to date. And in respect to the speed of, of the industry's growth, it's just astronomical. So now they're looking at new new industries like the the fact of competitive gaming and that, that you can fill out stadiums full of people to watch people play games. It just shows what possibilities are out there. And I think with the growth of the industry, they all, all have the ability to kind of understand that they can impact change and impact the change on society in an astronomical scale. So if you look at the industry worth by 2027, it'll be worth $337 billion. So there's a huge amount of money there to do a huge amount of good. And bearing in mind, you know, Katie, looking at the um, NGOs, I, I remember reading a stat during um, the pandemic that a lot of charities lost about 41% of their donations. Um, so when, when charities are losing out on a lot of money, um, which is restricting them in the ability of the impact that they can drive, it's for me, it makes perfect sense to be seeing more of these progressive partnerships for change within the game sector to kind of drive that money from one end of the cycle through to a positive end at the, at the other side. So I think there's, there's huge op- opportunities for hope and optimism, but it's just a case of connecting those dots to begin with. But Ryan, like I noticed you were nodding your head quite a bit as we were chatting. So um, I wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to dive in as well. Yeah, no, I think it, I, I pretty much agree with what everyone said. I really like, that's exactly how I looked at it, what Katie said. It was the grown-up version that we then got. We got the sort of like, you know, let's just throw at this. And then it was so much easier for, you know, the grown-ups to come along and actually put it into a, into a real adult-mannered way rather than sort of just throwing it up in the air and sort of giving it a gamble. Um, and I think that was really um, something that just made it a lot easier. Let's be honest, it was never going to be an easy thing to sort of talk about or discuss or go through. And I think that's really hard to kind of get across in in any of it. Uh, again, people are always going to be left behind. And I think, you know, going back to what Morris was saying, you know, I'd, I'm fully aware these people are not stupid and they know what they're doing. But I think it's that empathetic, that human element that these people, you know, that are in these positions need to have. And that's, that's the key to this, uh, of trying to get this to change, because they'll go out, they'll shake the hands with the people, they'll have the photo opportunity. But actually, it's about putting their mouth where they where the money is uh, as they say in actually being able to deliver on it because it's we're past that stage now where this can be an opportunity for PR shall we say you know people are fed up with that people actually want to see real change people really want to see that people care Um, and I think going back to what Juliet said you know when you look at the pandemic during that period, that sense of community really came in. People were happy because actually for the first time, you know, within 15 days, most businesses went online. Now, from a disability uh, flexibility away, that just opened the door for accessibility for a lot of businesses and a lot of people. 15 days. Well, then what happened, go to your point, Juliet, in the sense of, well, now it's all get back into the offices. Well, where's the accessibility when you come back into that? So, it was okay when everyone was at risk because we didn't really know what was going on because people getting coughs and all sorts of um, the of the COVID. But actually, now it's not acceptable for that. So no, you can't work from home. So accessibility is you need to come into a, an office. And I think that's where the disconnect is, is how did you really pave the way to get out of this? There was no thought. And I think now that is why we're in the place where we're at. And we've got all of these different issues. Yes, it's great that they're going up with the cost of living when it comes to 
allowances and benefits. Is it enough? No, because it's already been so far behind for years and the cost of living has already gone up. So, you know, what do you want? A round of applause or that? No, absolutely not, because you have completely fundamentally forgotten about that because you were focusing on other areas. And I really love that idea in the sense of utilising the resources that we know are sort of on standby. I know that the army are doing lots of different things and possibly waiting, but why can we not? It was very easy to utilise those during the pandemic to roll out the vaccine to get it to places a lot quicker. Well, now all of a sudden that whole ideology has now been forgotten and we can't use them again to fix or speed up elements that we need to use. And I think that, that, you know, it's using a bit of innovation, I think, and a bit of kind of understanding to just look at that might have been the way we did it 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but the world has evolved and it's changed. And I think it's, you know, that that solution needs to be re-looked at. Yeah, I love the fact that you say the world's evolved and it's changed because, like, if you look at some of the um, things that took place during the pandemic, there was this thing called the Great Resignation, whereby a lot of people resigned from their jobs because of the, there was no alignment between their own individual values and the company's values. So yeah. it just makes me think of that old analogy of pain plus uh, reflection equals progress. And we've all had this period of grand reflection and we've had an opportunity to think what we want from society, what we want from businesses, what we want from governments. What does change look like that we desire and want from from the future? And how do we go about building that now? And it's just interesting because it almost feels like society and people have taken about 10 steps forward. And then now with measures and waves of austerity coming in, it's like we're taking five or six steps back. I wanted to say that's a really interesting point. What you say, you know, the great resignation was a buzzword that people kept using. And a really interesting point, Caroline Casey, our co-founder, was once asked a question, when Black Lives Matter happened, she they turned around and said, oh, how do you feel now? Because obviously disability is now going to be further down the agenda. And Caroline's answer to that was, what about the black disabled people? And I think that's the the key to around all of these sort of things. We pocket all of these different elements into what what the tick process or tick box, whatever it needs to be. But actually what inclusion and diversity actually means is that they all kind of inclusive means all. It doesn't mean that we segregate and we do it as a simple like categorise and segregation. And I think that's the important factor with this is that, yes, during the pandemic, for once, everybody was all in the same position, regardless of of your wealth, everybody was in the same position because you all had to stay at home. You wasn't allowed to go out. You wasn't allowed to socialise. And that was something that had never been heard or seen before. And I think people, when you look at the Great Resonation, just had a bit more of a purpose. And they realised, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? What could I be doing better? How could I help? And I think that's why that happened. But, you know, all of the other people would say, well, the Great Resonation, it was just a phase. It was just a, a thing. But it wasn't. But people just woke up a little bit and some people were happy to return to their lives. Other people weren't because other people were too hurt. You know, people lost loved ones. People weren't able to say goodbye. People will never forget that. And that's what I mean. I think that's where a lot of this is quite hard because you cannot just cover up the cracks of what has happened. You know, people will live with certain elements of this for the rest of their lives. And I think that's the problem. When you can look at the great resignation in different ways. I think some of our policymakers are looking at it saying, oh, there's a problem here, as Ryan was saying, that people need to have, you know, have jobs where they feel they're accomplishing something to make the world better. And other people, other policymakers look at it and say, oh, the problem is that there's so many jobs available, people don't feel this dependency and fear of leaving their jobs. 
So they want to change policies to make it more difficult to leave and make it more difficult to change jobs so that people are more dependent on their employers. You know, I even had a congressperson come to my office and say, oh, we want to make sure our policies maintain the connection of employees and their employers by giving aid to the employers, not to the employees. I think, well, yeah, but why do we want to maintain this? Why do we want to force employees to be connected to their employers? I don't think that's a good idea. And so we disagree on what we're trying to do. And I think it's good that employees have some freedom to find other jobs if they don't like their jobs. But other people think that's a bad thing. And so that's where we have to have the argument, not on the mechanism of, you know, what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think it's more to do with impact now. So if you kind of look at recently, everybody's seen what's happened with Elon Musk and what's what's taking place with Twitter. There's an awful lot of people that have lost out on their jobs there. Meta have got rid of 11,000, um, some of which are my friends. And I remember Rishi Sunak standing up and saying that he wanted the UK to be like the Silicon Valley. Um, but if you look at some of the challenges that are coming out of the Silicon Valley at this point in time, it's not necessarily like people don't have the freedom to choose who they work for, but I think there's an underlying desire from people to drive impact. They want to see impact from the companies they work for and also impact in the work that they do. Because, um, you know, back to Juliet's point earlier about the long-term versus short-term, like we have a real opportunity now to be, you know, the ancestors our future descendants need. We, we can do things in today that will drive the progressive change forward for future generations. And like the, the world's most pressing problems that we face can be remediated, but it requires people to come together rather than to separate into these silos. So that, that's where I've always been at a bit of a loss with, I'm not going to bring Brexit into it, but I, I will talk briefly at the fact that, you know, as an, as an economy, we lose a hundred billion per annum. And again, some of the problems that we're going to face uh, as a, you know, globally, such as climate change, et cetera, it needs almost like that Bretton Woods agreement where, where nations come together to agree upon change rather than um, individual silos to kind of doing their own individual desires, needs, and, and, and whims for the benefit of, of self rather than everyone. I just point out that your prime minister should know that Silicon Valley took two-thirds of a century to become what it is, and the majority of that time it was almost entirely funded by military. And it was by military needs that created the entire infrastructure for chips and integrated circuits and all of these things. And I mean, and his wife's family knows the same thing that happened, you know, in the India. And so I think that it's not just something that happens spontaneously, people becoming billionaires. It happens because the government made policy decisions to make it happen. And they can decide we're going to spend huge amounts of public funds on supporting a new, supporting some industry. But it's not, these industries don't just come into being from nothing. They come into being from policymakers making decisions that make it happen. And if you're going to put in huge amounts of public funds, you should have a very clear idea of what you expect out in terms of huge amounts of uh, uh, public benefit as well, I would suggest. You know, the, 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 what though they expected when they created Silicon Valley was intercontinental ballistic missiles 
that could destroy the Soviet Union's military. That's what they got. And, you know, and decades later, they got people using those same chips to sell these computers that we're using for our video conference. But that's long-term thinking again, isn't it? If you were an investor, you'd be thinking of having a very long-term, low discount rate and a very long-term sort of patient capital approach, which is what what that kind of investment in innovation is. And it's interesting because I think the UK has done a lot of investment in things like the pharmaceutical industries, but much less so in some of the other industries, particularly the energy sector. I was just going to go on from what Morris was saying about, you know, to two-thirds of of a century, whatever, to build Silicon Valley. But we've got the ability now to invest in infrastructures, in renewable energy at a much greater speed. And it just needs that that person to say, right, we need to do this now because it's not the long term. We can't be looking at the long term for these things. We need people to actually invest in these opportunities now. So within 10 years, we can be saying, right, okay, now we're running 60% of the country on renewable energy. Whereas, I mean, Greece, the other, I think it was on the 14th of October, ran the whole of Greece for five hours on renewable energies. Yeah. Which is, you know, it, it can be done. It just needs that impetus of people to actually invest and implement the ideas and actually be getting on with what needs to, needs doing. But I do agree with what Morris was saying. Back then it took a lot longer and it was for different reasons. But we've got the technology now. We've got the infrastructure to be able to do these renewable energies but that's the thing like bearing in mind what can be done now i think it gives us an awesome opportunity to kind of progress forward and and talk about solutions that we that we know and we we would like to see and equally we know would work because kind of i think the old macroeconomic argument of um, neoliberalism is you know kind of like the seas of change that it does feel like there's there's we're at the cusp of a paradigm shift so bearing in mind some of the opportunities that lie ahead of us if we had the ability to drive change, what would change look like by way of solutions to the current challenges that we face? So, Katie, let's maybe start with you. Well, I guess maybe I'll start with something that I think's come up with in a lot of our conversations, and it's a kind of um, mindsets and imagination shift, really. So, the long-termism, I think, is one, but I really liked, Julie, I mean, I haven't played video games since Chucky Egg in the 80s. So I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I really liked Juliet's challenge of, because the, the, the one of the descriptions of activism, which, you know, Oxfam is broadly in that space that I like best is that it's sort of rehearsals for a different future. And what I like about Juliet's challenge to the gaming industry was, you know, we have an opportunity to create something here. And, and in, in doing that, you actually start to appreciate how much of the world we experience now is created, is man-made, is norms and expectations and ideas of what grown-up looks like and ideas of what business looks like and ideas of what infrastructure looks like and growth and so on and so forth. That is all constructed. So I think one of the, you know, one of the first sets is to challenge ourselves on where some of these these um, mindsets are not helpful. Uh, we've been talking about infrastructure for a lot in this conversation in the last 10 minutes or so mentioned a lot you know we need to start thinking about infrastructure different care is an infrastructure child care adult social care is an is an absolutely vital piece of infrastructure just like roads and businesses if we're going to get roads and bridges you know if we're going to get businesses working um, we need to think beyond growth all of our approach to the economy that says it's a kind of 
let's save for you know let's save for the future or you know let's let's make sure that we don't have it all presupposes some kind of stable future i don't think we've got a stable future i think with climate change and all of the disruption that that brings we have crisis upon crisis so rather than thinking ah right let's recover and go back to normal and try and you know work on a stable economy for the future we've got to be thinking how can we be resilient now for the next shock that's coming and that's resilient in people's health in people's resilience to withstand poverty. And that's, you know, and that's not just in places that are facing famine, that's here. I'll come back to maybe some of the, the sort of policy solutions. But I think the first thing I wanted to reflect on this conversation is those solutions, they've, they've got to start in a kind of mindset shift and, and playing, you know, to take Juliet's steer, you know, playing with what's possible in an imaginative way. And that's one of the things I think we can pass on to, to, to future generations. I agree. Um, I just want to say as well that there's a gaming company out there called Playmob, and they actually work with the UN Environment Programme. And what they do, they helped the UN Environment uh, Programme write their IPCC result, report. So what the game is, they've got a game called Mission 1.5, which is targeted at children. And that game actually gives the children options of the best or worst solutions to a problem. And it's a, it's a multiple choice. And they used that game to gather data and they actually presented that to the UN and they used that data to write their IPCC report. So the, the gaming industry is is at the forefront of climate action and it wants to be seen as that. And it, it, like Juliet was saying, you know, there are a lot of games out there. Why aren't they doing more towards the environment? But they, it's behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's it's, it's not just about the climate, it's about social, it's about bullying within gaming and things like that. And bizarrely enough, 51% of gamers are now female. It is a big change, and there's a lot being done which is benefiting what we're all trying to achieve. So I think there is a lot of positives to come out of what we are discussing, and there's things that I'm going to take away from this. I think bearing in mind some of the stuff we've mentioned in respect to investment, obviously for us to progress to the type of society that we want to see and, and thrive within, how do we best generate the funds to do so? We've had this conversation before, Morris, about taxation, but like tax is a really interesting thing to delve into at this point in time, because if you do look at some of the rationale between decisions made during the autumn statement, for example, it for me, it doesn't it doesn't go far enough. I did see that they looked at windfall taxes and they've rose that from 25% to 35%. But, you know, if you look at the treasury data, that's there's over two years, there's 170 billion that's available. So why just take 35% of that? So I think bearing in mind your expertise, Morris, and the work that you guys do at the Patriots of the Millionaires, I think it's a, it's a really good opportunity to talk about tax. Well, I would even go another step and say that you in the United Kingdom and we here in the United States have these unique advantages of having countries that issue their own currency. And so there's not a fixed number of British pounds in existence. There's not a fixed number of US dollars in existence. The Bank of England and the Fed respectively decide, uh, make decisions to create you know, the currencies. And so I think we have to look at taxes as a mechanism, not because the government needs this money to do something, but it's a way of allocating. It's a way of allocating how much money should be in the hands of the very rich and how much money should be in the hands of everyone else who works for a living. 
And it's not the question isn't, oh, how much money does the government need? The question is, how should the what resources we have in our country be allocated? The money is just a claim on things you can buy with the money. It's not useful in and of itself. And so it's an allocation mechanism. And currently we're saying that those people that are investors who are wealthy should have a far greater share of our nation's stuff than those people who work for a living. Because those people who work have money taken away from them every single paycheck. And those people who are investors have far less taken away from them. And so we're slowly moving wealth from workers to wealthy investors, even more so in the United Kingdom, the United States. And I think that's how we should look at tax policy as an allocation mechanism and decision of how we are allocating things. And frankly, we believe we should allocate more to people who work for a living and people who have less and allocate less by taking some away in taxes to the very rich. So we're in favor of increasing taxes on the rich and or decreasing taxes on um, everyone else. And it's interesting because I did read the report that you guys did yesterday, Katie, at Oxfam, that you mentioned the idea of a progressive wealth tax of between 2 and 10% on the world's millionaires and billionaires could rise um, 1.1 trillion more than the annual average savings of governments that plan to, to, to take through cuts. So there's huge scope of of availability of funds it's just the ability to kind of a create policy and practice around that and and b as, as morris says like redirect the wealth to the people that need it yeah i mean you know the world isn't short of money it's just in a very increasingly small you know amount of hands yes we often put out these these statistics and they and they aggregate global figures but of course that's not the way tax works at the moment so one of the things i think we need to challenge or, or you know one of the ways we need to imagine things differently is um if we are going to at a global scale allocate the global wealth that is out there towards the global problems that exist which are everybody problems climate change pandemics etc you know we're probably going to have to push ourselves to think beyond the sort of sovereignty angle of tax and actually think in a globalized economy, in a globalized world, this is to a certain extent, you know, globalized wealth and think how to capture and and allocate that resources. What that gets you around a little bit is, is what you have whenever you're talking about sort of tax harmonizing, which is countries want to engage in a race to the bottom. Um, against all the logic, Morris points out that people don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily drive business and and choices countries want to engage in a race to the bottom rather than a race to the top on taxation yes i agree so in light of the challenges that we face like what alternatives could we utilize at this moment rather than another detrimental round of austerity i think one of the one of the truths that austerity hangs on or one of the perceived truths is the idea that, you know, there just isn't the money, right? There is no alternative to, to, to cutting back or to asking ordinary people to pay more through, you know, just increased everyday taxes, increased VAT, all these kind of thing that, that makes us all dig a little deeper. And, and I think just imagining a world a bit differently where, where you question how true that really is and where there are sources of money. I mean, the fact is in today's 
you know, vastly unequal world, there is money. It's just in the wrong places. It's in private hands. And so thinking um, of ways to essentially, you know, capture and share that, not only to pay for the public services that we need, but also to address inequality has to be the way forward. So, you know, there are ways to do that um, which address huge sources of wealth within industry, um, windfall taxes on oil and gas companies are popular at the moment and they could go a lot further especially yeah. while it's 35 percent at the moment right it, exactly and, and and while um prices are so high it is it you know it absolutely stands to reason to tax the the companies and the individuals behind them who are who are making a killing out of the cost of living crisis literally also you know organizations like oxfam have long called for called for measures like financial transaction tax popularized as the robin hood tax so this is an idea of a really a micro tax, 0.5% or 0.05% even on the sort of electronic financial transactions that are taking place in their thousands uh, across financial centres like the city. Because it's small amounts of taxation, but high frequency um, financial trading that's going on, you're able to raise um, huge sums of money there, which could be put um to better use. But then also just looking at individual sources of wealth as well. If we were really to um, look at increasing the amount that we uh, tax wealth to the same extent that we tax work. So just to put that into terms, that would be, you know, taxing gap- capital gains at the same rate as we tax income. That's how you get hold of the wealth, the money and the assets that really do exist without taxing ordinary people further and without cutting public services that we all rely on i think people don't really understand tax to a level that they potentially should and if you look at tax tax can be a positive thing if you look at it correctly and at the moment like people just see i think we're at like a 40 year high in the volume of tax that we pay at the moment um, and what do we get in return like we're about to go into another wave of austerity and yet you see a lot of tax being avoided through the things such as like transfer pricing where you can have some office in the Cayman Islands doing essentially just processing um, POs and invoices and very little work, but it has a a, a location there that they can utilize to transfer wealth from one locality to another. You can also look at how um, ultimately the distribution of IP is is located. So where sources of intellectual property for a company is located, there's often a transfer of money from, say, the UK over to another low-cost tax haven to pay for those intellectual property rights of that company itself. So there's a lot of like legal means at the moment that can just be tightened to avoid a lot of this. And it's kind of quite frustrating because when you look at the, the wider impacts you know, you, you mentioned windfall. I did read a Treasury document a while ago. It talked about 170 billion over two years. It's available. Um, so why are we taxing just 35 percent at this pre- present point in time? And then you look at UK residents. There's 850 billion available in tax havens at the moment. Like there's huge sums of wealth, and we're talking about a 50 billion um, pound black hole, um, which is driving this austerity measures. We've also got to look back in time and realize that, you know, like Liz Trust, um, her economic view, shall we say, cost, um, mm-hmm. cost, the, cost the UK taxpayer 30 billion. Um, so there's 30 billion of, of the 50. Rishi Sunak failed to insure against um, in, 
interest rates hikes um, during the during the COVID pandemic that cost us eleven billion. So you and you know everybody looks at the things that we evidently see through um, COVID, such as PPE, VIP lanes. Um, we also see the cost of test and trace at thirty seven billion. What did we get for a lot of these um, provisions? There's been an awful lot of wealth taken out of the state, but at this moment in time, it, the, I feel the onus isn't on the people on the PAYE to be paying that money back. It's on the, as you say, the people that have made a lot of money in a small space of time. And, and it's rising levels of inequality, which is detrimental to overarching societies. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems that we have in that sort of analysis is that um, so much of this wealth kind of sits between jurisdictions, I mean, purposefully so, so that it's very hard for any individual country to um, capture it, particularly developing countries. And you brought in that global angle, you know, we're all busy debating. And one of the things that got left out in the, you know, one of the things that, that, that has lost out in last week's fiscal statement was uh, was overseas aid. We're all busy debating, can we afford overseas aid? Well, you know, organisations like Oxfam and others campaigning on tax justice have said for years, you know, the amount of money that developing countries lose through um, tax dodging is, you know, dwarfs aid flows. So it is the case that private wealth extraction dwarfs the kind of public wealth investment um, that we're seeing into countries. Talking about the kind of architecture that allows us to imagine a different world as 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 we were in this conversation. I think um, one of the sort of chinks of light um, that might not have necessarily been noticed is um, a UN vote this week that saw the United Nations take the decision to start negotiating a global, a properly intergovernmental tax treaty, potentially paving the way for a world tax body. And the reason this is important is where we've seen governments come together um, and negotiate, you know, tackling tax dodging or perhaps, um, you know, a addressing the race to the bottom on corporate tax. That's completely been led by rich countries, OECD countries. And it, it, it's essentially not done enough to bring the needs of developing countries into, into the picture. A proper globally run UN body, which is something African nations in particular have been calling from, would be a real step forward in, in that to allow us to work at how to capture that wealth between countries, but also how to make sure that poorer countries get the share they deserve of that. And it's also a great um, counter as well to this polarization that we see um, throughout the world at the moment. A lot of countries are harkering back to like their silos. So, you know, we saw it in, in Brexit when the UK left the European Union. We came at, became essentially from a company perspective, we became a, a silo entity. And if in respect to the, those elements, when, when you do look at like global change as a, as a holistic view, a lot of the larger impacts that we see, like let's look back to you know like even the days of post wars for example when people got around the table and created the Bretton woods um it's we're going to get to a position where it, in order to solve these most pressing problems that we face they're not going to be done by a national level they're going to be done at an international level because we live in a globalized society so we we have to kind of see to counter polarization we have to see more cooperation between nations and and transparency and i think that you know there is a lot of hope and optimism because people are actively having these discussions like we are they're actively implementing new policies and practices within their companies and equally whilst we do see things like cop not exactly giving the outcomes that many people wanted from this this last one uh, that took place over in Sharm el-Sheikh 
there is opportunity for change by people having that initial conversation and wanting to drive that uh, conversation into action because like we've got a real opportunity to, ch- to counter the challenges we face with progressive change and and that's what i think an awful lot of people want but it ne- they need that level of understanding and they need the ability to forge out those partnerships that are relevant to help grow a sustainable economy yeah i think cooperation cooperation is key but i think one of the things that we've really you know there's been several examples recently that have shown us that that it has to be cooperation with justice. So it can't be cooperation, which is driven by institutions such as you mentioned, the Bretton Woods institutions, um, OECD, etc. It can't be cooperation that works between rich countries and then poorer countries get the, the, the crumbs of that. You know, it has to be cooperation built on a real understanding of historical injustices, whether that's attribution for climate change, whether that's attribution for slavery. You know, there's a lot more talk now about um, reparations, frameworks. One of the big successes at the COP in Sharm el-Sheikh was the decision to move ahead with a global uh, finance facility for loss and damage. So this is the understanding that some in, in, in many countries around the world, there are things happening because of climate change that there's no adapting to and there's no mitigating. They are, that you know, environments, people's ways of life are being lost and are being damaged and um, compensation is needed for that. And that should come from the countries with the highest historical drivers of, of climate change. So you're right on cooperation, but we're moving into a new phase now where it's cooperation with a strong lens of, of, of global justice as well. I think if I had any solutions for some businesses, when we look at how could we, you know, grow our economy or anything like that, coming from a complete disability background here now, is is actually considering the disability spend. So, you know, 13 trillion is what the disability, the purple pound, whatever way you want to call it, they have. Most businesses don't consider the business uh, disability consumer within their business strategy. So what would happen if businesses started considering that in a little bit more? I mean, Craig, I come back to you, I'd really love to know about in the gaming world how they're showing that diversity and inclusiveness for people with disability. So we normalize, I hate the word normalize, but how we represent, so we show representation in gaming. So it's not seen as a disadvantage, it's seen as a, a way and that we see that representation and that's something that would be great to see. 15% of the population, 15% of the population, 1.3 billion of people have a disability. With an aging population, that's only going to get higher. What do we do then? Because the world that we live in, unfortunately, at the moment is not accessible. You know, so we need to remodel. So I understand we need to do investment. and I know we raise taxes and all of that, but we really need to make the world accessible for all. Because as we become an aging population, you may not think you need a wheelchair uh, accessible element or a lift or a ramp or anything like that. But one day you might. And I think that's the problem that we have is that we have, and I don't get me wrong, I have no magic wand here, I have no solution, but it is a very blinkered silo. And I will be honest with you, before I started at the Valuable 500, some of these things I was completely oblivious to and, and not aware of. But since coming into it, looking at the world and how it's shaped and modelled, it's not accessible. You know, it's, it's very much managed in a way where it isn't able and accessible for all. So what can we do to encompass that more within business strategy? That's what we're trying to do at Valuable 500. But how do we make that so that it's on more of people's mindset? 
when we're thinking about just everyday life and how we look at that. And that, that ticks on all bo boxes in looking at representation, diversity, and also afterthoughts of how things can be accessible for all. And that, that, that would be my two pennies in because we can't continue to carry on in the way that we're doing because that is a community that has been oppressed and left behind time after time. So how do we, we really change that? And I, and I think some of the things that you were saying, Katie, when you look at various other elements of how you could bring and pull that in, you know, the costs just pile up even more as you then have an aging population because more of these needs are needed and that's just going to cost more money and, and who's going to be penalised for that? So I think it's just a more of a, a grounded, more of an, a, a sort of open-minded outlook is needed. And sustainability and climate change are all really important, but they all become great buzzwords. Where's the action? And I think it's, uh, you know, a really important factor that uh, Caroline, our founder, I always quote her all the time slightly. But I think one of the biggest things is it's not an a la carte menu. We're not after an a la carte menu. You can't in business look at this and go, we're going to focus on sustainability, climate change, diversity. This year we'll look at women. Next year we'll look at men. We have to actually look at this as a real thing. And I think that's the problem. It's not looking at them in silo, but how do we change all of these? And, that, and, and like I said, my, my caveat out to this is I don't know what that magic answer is or what the solution is to it. But I know it's about really thinking about all of those elements a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's it's about looking holistically at the at the overarching challenges because, you know, if you look at like the rising levels of food prices or inequality, like it's actually driven this year alone two hundred and sixty three million more people into extreme poverty. That's actually totaling out eight hundred and sixty million people living below the one dollar ninety a day extreme poverty line, which is a, a stat I took from Oxfam's report yesterday. But it's. It's insane. Like we, we see these insane problems and it's, it's not a case of perpetuating the problem. It's a case of coming together to facilitate the solutions that are required and um, actually make, you know, if, if we create change, it's about holding people accountable to, to the narrative. So if we, if we say something that's, that's important and we want to drive change through that particular mechanism, it's about holding people accountable to timeframes, not extending these dates that we saw recently at COP that are going to outlive people's lifespans. It's a case of doing things now and what can be done now. And I, I think that's an important point, though, Peter, because everyone always kind of aligns themselves to the sustainable development goal, growth goals. You know, most businesses will put that as, you know, this is what we're focusing on, the UN 17 of them. One of them is all about inequalities. And a lot of people forget about that. So they'll pl plaster it all over their websites. They'll say we're aligned to this. We're all about supporting it. But really, actually, when you pick it apart and look at the different STGs, there's elements where they're not even considering it. But it was a really good buzzword for us to put that on our website that we're following this. And I think that's that's the thing where we have to change that mindset. It's not good enough to just put or put a stamp of approval like we're following this. It's about the action side and, you know, to see the action. So bearing in mind the action, bearing in mind like we're coming to an end of this of this podcast, I wanted to just go around the table and ask people what actions would you like to see people drive in their own lives and equally on a on a grand scheme of things? What kind of top two or three elements would you like to see um, driven from a political perspective that's going to drive the impact, that's going to drive the change that people desire and, and need and want? There's lots of micro actions we can all 
do in our lives in the way in our role as consumers and consistents but i'm going to go back to that mindset shift i think personally challenge yourself to to really critique and question what you're hearing when you hear there's no alternative when you hear the oh this is going to hurt but we have to do it uh you know when you hear oh it's complicated or you'd be naive to do otherwise go back to think out what um morris was saying people saying this they don't have the same agenda as you and they're pointing out that it's complicated they have a different agenda and i think it's being sort of alert and alive to that as citizens is really important political changes i mean it is a much greater taxation of wealth and being bold on that and being confident that actually nobody wants to be privately wealthy and publicly poor it's a miserable existence you have to pay a fortune in private security you have to buy your own in thing of anything rather than having a nice school for your kids to go to a nice pool down the road you can use uh, and and you know perfectly decent transport to get around it's inequality isn't good for anybody so let's call the bluff of those people who are not as enlightened as Morris and his friends uh, and go for much greater taxation of companies through windfall and excess profit taxes on billionaires, on uh, wealth taxes. And let's uh, be really ambitious and imaginative about how we invest that in, in, in combating challenges that we all face, uh, climate change um, and inequality. Yeah, definitely. And, and Craig? I just want to say to Ryan, you know, inclusivity of, of everybody. I think it's a major, major point that's been brought up today. And I think it's uh, Greta Thunberg said something a, a while ago. If we all do something, it's a lot more effective than a few doing everything. So I think it is up to everybody to, you know, make, create action and do actually be doing something themselves. And I must say, I agree with, Everything that everyone said, Morris, Katie, Juliet and Ryan, I think it's, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So it's been great. Amazing. Thank you. And Morris? Well, of course, I you know, agree with what my, the others of you have said. Uh, but continuing the theme, we think that what people should do is to leverage the power they have through collective action. And, you know, we have a word for that. It's called government. And collectively, we through acting together as a whole society, we can do so much more than any of us can individually. And so I think what people should do is make their voices known, speak out, vote, and elect people to office who agree with your positions. And that is the most important thing that we think people should do. And we think the policies that we support are that we do not want a significant part of our population being treated as second-class citizens. We do not want a lot of people feeling like they're being excluded from a major part of society, whether that's civics, finance, just physical access to facilities, whatever it is. We want to live in a society where everybody's making a contribution, and that's better for all of us too, including those investors and business people. So those are the kinds of policies that we support. Amazing. And Ryan? Uh, yeah, I think obviously what everyone said I agree with. I think what I would love to see more, if I could change anything, was more inclusive design. 
So design of the world, remodeling, reshaping, relooking, just revisionary and realigning that. And I think that all comes down where we can all play our part. So I think echoing whatever everyone else has said, you know, we can all own a part of that in our own way and just thinking about that and considering it, but also pushing it and driving it, asking the questions and putting yourself in those per- people's shoes and looking at that and, you know, trying to force that change, which I think we're all kind of after. I think for me, the takeaway I would like to see is that I think every business can also take a step towards this in everything they do from whether it's the way they hire people through to the where they buy their energy from, if they go into an office, what they do there, to who they bank with, to who their pensions are with. Every single stage of any business can get involved in this sector. And it it can be about taking a chance on a new marketing agency who do everything from a sustainable point of view. And I think that we can can actually have much more impact, even if we're not, it's not our core business in terms of, we can actually have an absolute impact at every stage of what we do. And that's one of the things I learned being an entrepreneur and then a business, uh, running a business for, for 20 years is that every step you take, you have an impact as a business. And you can you can come together as industry to make huge shifts. So I think there's there's all different levels of different uh, that people can get involved, and no one is better than the other. But I think business also should be doing its best. Yeah, it's been amazing having you guys all involved in this, and thank you so much for your time. I think hopefully what resonates to our listeners listening to this is that the power of change rests with ourselves. Like we can't change the world until we change ourselves, but when you ultimately see what is possible, change is inevitable. So we've we're at a real tipping point now where we can kind of go forward and drive the progressive change that people need, desire, and want, and actually build out a, a, a new economy, a new world that's for the benefit of all thank you so much to everybody that joined today and um yeah i really appreciate your time thanks peter thank you pleasure thank you thank you for listening to the purpose made podcast don't forget to subscribe to purpose made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.